Have you ever had an idea for a physical product that you just knew had the potential to change the world? Maybe it was something you dreamt up in your garage or a solution to a problem you encountered in your daily life. Whatever it was, you knew it was a winner. If only you can turn that idea into something. Well, you are not alone. Countless entrepreneurs and innovators have stood exactly where you stand, filled with passion and drive, but unsure of where to begin. And that's where the Builder Circle comes in. My name is Seda Ejiman, and I'm a mechanical engineer, hardware enthusiast, and hardware mentor. I've had the privilege of working with numerous hardware companies that are passionate about solving some of the biggest challenges in the world. And I will be your host as we explore the exciting and complex world of physical product development. Welcome to the Builder Circle. Today on this episode, we have William Burke from Fiveflute joining us. Today, we're going to start at the top and we're going to talk through the design process and how you can set it up for success when building an innovation product. So starting from building the right thing, we're going to talk about design requirements and choosing your choosing your users and doing user studies. We're also going to talk through accounting for manufacturability, repairability, lifecycle, and scalability, so in short, DFX. And then we're going to dive into a little bit of the common pitfalls and failures that most companies experience during their design processes. And then we're going to do a fun little segment in the middle where we do hardware hacks, where Will will kind of go through a bunch of hardware hacks that he's come across. He's going to go into some really cool detailed manufacturing hacks as well as some design process hacks that he's done in the past in a machine shop. And then we're going to start talking a little bit about AI and the future of design, how AI could potentially influence or integrate itself in the design process. And then, as per usual, at the end of the episode, I will have my TLDL, where it's called Too Long Didn't Listen, where I will summarize all of the key takeaways from the episode so that if you don't have time but you really want to learn more about the design process and how to set up your requirements and strategize the way that you set up your uh, product design, you can get the key takeaways at the end. And when you have more time, you can come back and listen to the rest of the episode. And without further ado, I leave you with Will. Welcome to the Builder Circle. Today, I am in the presence of William Burke from Five Flute. I am so incredibly excited about this podcast episode because we'll be talking about the design process and what goes into the first stages of product development. So, Will, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm stoked. I, we were just saying before you started recording that the community needs this kind of discussion. I just, I feel like there's nowhere on the internet for mechanical engineers, <laughs> to be honest. And, I'm in a, yeah. and like anyone that makes a place for them, I'm usually happy about. Yeah. And also Will himself writes incredible articles to help mechanical engineers under Five Flute. So you should definitely go check that out. Okay. To start off, Will, could you give a little bit of background on yourself? And then we'll dive into Five Flute afterwards, but just let the listeners know who you are, where you've been, what your experience has been, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm first and foremost a pretty hardcore nerdy mechanical engineer, I would say. My first grade teacher actually told my mother that I would be a mechanical engineer. 
Wow. Yeah, crazy, right? (laughs) I know, because I was like designing things. I was like making like little games and like I learned to sew my own baseball glove in third grade and all just, yeah, kind of just always been making things. And then I found biking, found bikes. I think this is bikes are like a gateway drug for a lot of mechanical engineers. Definitely. And I found bikes in like middle school and high school and started like racing them and taking them apart and like rebuilding my shocks and like generally messing them up and just tinkering. Like I had this big kind of a foundation of mechanical design without even knowing it before I even went to engineering school. That's cool. Which is a lucky thing. I kind of want to circle back on this point because I think engineering education has some pretty severe faults and you can see it in, in grads, recent grads, but. Anyway, just a nerd's nerd mechanical engineer spent the beginning part of my career doing kind of race car stuff, heavy truck suspensions, designed boats for a while, but they were weird boats. They were boats with suspension systems at a company called Marine Advanced Research, now called Ocean Power Technologies, actually Marine Advanced Robotics Division, and then had a, a little stint in manufacturing. And that was kind of my first taste of startups at a company called Plethora which was in the Bay Area. We were putting the machinist's brain and software and operating a factory to CNC machine parts and writing software to make that process easier. And I ran the hardware team there and stumbled into managing the factory for a few years. That's amazing. Uh, which was like super interesting. And then burn out on that. I like took a four month climbing trip and then retreated back to my first love, which was just pure engineering design. That's mm-hmm. when I joined a firm called Cooper Perkins that recently got bought by PA Consulting, but I was the engineering director there and was running really cool programs like teams of electromechanical engineers doing everything from like early technology development to pretty straightforward consumer product development work. And that that's where I incubated a lot of the ideas for FiveFlute. When I got interested in engineering tools, I was starting to think not just as a project manager or an IC, but as like an organizational leader and someone that's responsible for making sure that engineering teams work well. and in that process, I rolled out a bunch of software tools, tools like Asana, typically things that were like designed for developing software and adapting them to hardware, which I feel like is a common pattern. And just, it was just really frustrating. I feel like a lot of the mechanical engineering tools in particular are frozen in time. Yeah. Um, like when I looked at my stack of tools from like 2007, it's basically identical to what it was in 2019. Like Excel works in my spreadsheet. Let's do this, right? And maybe Python or whatever, or MATLAB or something. But like, realistically, it's like, that was my tool set. And let's make a Gantt chart and like model some stuff and get in a room and figure it out. And it's just not, when you look over at the software world and you look at the way that they have built these incredibly powerful abstractions that they can build on top of being a software engineer and 2007, they wouldn't recognize what development looks like today. Uh, totally. It's a totally, totally different game. And so FiveFluid is founded on that core frustration. It's like, well, why isn't engineering, why isn't mechanical engineering the same way? So yeah, so then I met my co-founder, Carson, got introduced through a mutual friend. FiveFluid actually started as a kind of like a side project and we built the wrong product first and then learn some things and then COVID like second wave was peaking and it was everyone was, oh my God, we're not going to be in the office ever again. How do we do hardware? Yeah. Right. And so we, that's actually when we started taking a look at issue tracking and realized that there was a really big opportunity and then raised mm-hmm. some money for the company. What, what FiveFlute is basically an issue tracking and design review platform for anyone making physical products. So that's MEs, double E's, industrial designers, engineering mm-hmm. technicians, and all the management layers around that. And 
I think the thing that, you know, really sets us apart or philosophically sets us apart is that we want to bring as much capability inside CAD as we can. So today that means that we're focused on issue tracking inside SolidWorks. I think CAD is like this incredible video game that mechanical engineers get really good at and they often want to, um, but it's like your IDE as a software engineer. Like mm -hmm. it's the place where you're doing your coding, right? You don't really want to leave that to do anything to report like a problem. Like context switching is yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So what we do is we make it really easy for engineers to create issues and share visual feedback with the team directly inside CAD, whether you're a CAD user or a non-CAD user. And I think the CAD platforms are these incredible tools, but typically they're designed in the 90s. They're not multiplayer products, mm -hmm. save for, you know, Onshape really, but like the CAD market is just chock full of tools that are, for lack of a better word, kind of legacy tools that are incredibly good at CAD modeling. They're very complicated. There's a lot going on underneath the hood there. Uh, and they're not going any, any, anywhere anytime soon. NX has been around forever and like people, yeah. SolidWorks desktop is growing, right? Yeah. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. These tools don't talk to each other, right? So if, I, if your typical stack your product development stack is something like SolidWorks and Altium, and then maybe like you have an industrial designer using Rhino or something like that. And then you have some people writing like firmware or software on top of that. None of these environments play well together. So it, when you bump into issues that cross discipline, it's mm -hmm. extremely clumsy to solve those problems. So like very simple design problems, like making an electronics enclosure or something. Yeah. Get are integrated with the geometry of a PCB, right? And maybe there's like a problem on that printed circuit board and it takes so long to trickle that information from the EE to the mechanical engineer in the right format that they can actually do something about it. The, the fix is great. I change and extrude in SolidWorks. It's five minutes, but it's, oh, you have to have a meeting about what's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so fundamentally, FiveFlute is about reducing that cross-disciplinary friction by giving everybody a toolkit to do really have a really rich visual conversation in the design environment that they're used to living. Yeah. And I've had the pleasure of being a beta user in some yeah. capacity for Five Flute. And it's really reimagining the way that engineering teams work together and trying to get rid of interdisciplinary silos in a collaborative and asynchronous, which a lot of specifically on the software and firmware side people prefer. Uh, working asynchronously and absolutely yep. hate having meetings. I think it has a lot of potential. And for people that are interested, definitely check it out. It's a really phenomenal idea that they're working really hard to make. Yeah, so much software to build. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so excellent. And the essence of what led you to FiveFlute is your experience in seeing the cycle and getting the frustration around the product development lifecycle. And so going, going to the like very first step, when you're starting the design process for an innovation product, whatever that may be, and fill off of any personal experience. Mm -hmm. But when you're starting building, how do you make sure that you're building the right thing? Because writing requirements is one of the like oftentimes in startups forgotten piece of the equation because people just assume that they know what the requirements are because yeah. the mission is so clear and the customer is clear. So like, why not just start designing stuff and kind of go into the open terrain of design world? But in, in your experience, how do you go about uh, writing good design requirements and choosing users and anchoring off of that customer? Yeah. Wow. Big question. Huge question. I think people get 
people get lumped into sort of two camps. There's like the first camp that you just mentioned, which is forget requirements. I want to start building now, right? I want to make progress. Requirements are for the birds, right? They're boring. Let's make <laughs> stuff. Yes. Um, and there's something to that for certain projects, projects where discovery is really important. And I think whether you're, you need to know whether you're doing technology development or product development, and we can put like a pin in that and come back to what the difference is. And then the second camp is the people that's like fashion, very quickly fashion their own prison of requirements. Yep. And they do it like right in the beginning of the project. And they're like, we cannot make any progress until all of the requirements are perfectly defined and we have a path to meet them. So, so there's this gradient. I think every very few projects live on the extremes, but it is the gradient and all projects live somewhere in that space. I've unfortunately seen many projects that live in those extremes. I don't, that's interesting. Why is that? Like, why do you think that is? Because uh, what happens sometimes in startups is that people, if it's a complicated enough product, people end up hiring folks from very big organizations where mm. they're very used to see like the part of the spectrum where it's the requirement prison. I love that terminology where they have been systems engineers for government contract big companies. So that's the only world that yeah, they yeah. know. So they yep. try to apply that. A lot of people don't know that systems engineering is not a one size fits all. I've seen that. And then the other way around is some startups hire very early career people mm -hmm. uh, who haven't had the experience and the pains of how much time gets lost without the presence of requirements. Yeah. So what those teams end up doing is they're super high energy. They have millions of ideas shooting out of their brains and they just really want to get it on a piece of paper and start brainstorming and like yep. doing stuff. And then they're like, I could rapid prototype this. And then they yeah. go and it's been months and there is no project manager, usually early stage. So no one stops them. <laughs> I've seen both ends of that spectrum really strongly, un unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, the, being on the the end of the spectrum where there are zero requirements and you have a product that like you're tooling is like the most horrifying thing. Agreed. Um, it's so scary. I've seen that a hand on a handful of projects I've been involved with, and it's really hard to reel that back in. It takes a really strong amount of leadership. But okay, so how do I tackle this typically? So typically I like to start with, I'm not a dogmatic person about requirements. I'm not like, you need to have like fully sussed out marketing requirements that inform product requirements that inform engineering requirements. I think that's typically like too much overhead. I like to just, you need to have some use cases, right? You need to have a shared conception of what the product is supposed to do at what le whatever level of depth you think suits the product. It's just like your judgment. And then typically only make a PRD sketch off of that. A PRD is a product requirements document. It's just a way to write down what the thing should do should not enumerate the solutions in an engineering sense. It's Very just, yeah, it's just, I don't know, like you're making a watch for scuba divers or something. It, it needs to work underwater at a certain yeah. depth for a certain amount of time. So I like to make a PRD and then it's, you're going to learn so much that you're going to update and you're going to fill in those requirements as you develop, but you need to have some like core subset that you know right up from the jump. Like right? non-negotiable. Yeah, I think, and I don't think it's hard. Like, I think you know what they are. I think like yeah. you can just get in a room and talk with people and they'll just trickle out. Or if it's like your company or someone's company that they're founding, like they have some pretty, they probably have pretty strong hypotheses about what the product needs to do to yep. meet the needs of the market, right? So that's just a conversation. Write that down, put it in whatever, a spreadsheet, Airtable, yada. Like it doesn't really matter. And then the 
don't put it away and forget about it. Keep it handy, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to learn a lot more and you're going to add in requirements as you iterate. And ultimately what you want to do is by the time that the thing is in the market, you have a really trustworthy set of requirements that you can actually know that you're meeting. And so those requirements should in some sense also inform or represent risks that you need to de-risk throughout your development. Yep. So that's how I think about it. I'm not a systems engineer. So, so, you know, I'm not a super well-qualified person to manage requirements on a rocket, for instance. Yeah. But I think it's it is really important to have something at the beginning of a product development cycle. Obviously, as you said, writing those requirements will likely be relatively easy if you are confident in the problem that you're solving and the solution that you are proposing will solve. So I completely agree. And it should be a living document is basically biggest advice here, which I've heard in other episodes I did and personally have have had experience with. So going through that, I know that Five Flute has a very good kind of hypothesis of what part of the market they're addressing. So when you were going through kind of user studies and who you were anchoring off of, how did you go about that exercise? Yeah, I think with Five Flute, I have a pretty tremendous advantage in that I'm scratching my own itch. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like I'm the customer in some sense at the highest level. That said, one of the first things we've developed on the design review side is actually a drawing review platform. So there's a module inside FiveFluid that lets you do a collaborative drawing review in your browser, upload drawings, assign them to people, designate reviewers, do all of your markup in browser, upload different revisions, compare across those revisions, and then run a custom approval process. And for me, it's been, I don't know, years since I've like really done drawings for a living. <laughs> We just had to find people that had like capital P drawing problem. People that like were reviewing a hundred drawings a day or whatever, and just talk to them. I don't know. I'm not, I think like people often over index on user research at Mm -hmm. certain times. It's, it's, it takes a while to do right. Like it takes outreach. It takes user feedback in general, I think is really noisy. So you need to like. Yeah. It's this kind of like stochastic process. You need to get like a lot of feedback and then you need to pull it all into your brain and be like, okay, what are the commonalities and tease that out? And that takes time. It takes a lot of time. Um, and so when you compare it to the certain design decisions or development decisions, many of them are reversible, those decisions. Mm-hmm. And so you don't necessarily need deep research if the decision can be rolled back very easily. If you can, the best research is like what customers actually do with your product. Um, so there's a spectrum there. Yeah, definitely. One one thing that Five Flute has done with me that I've really appreciated is just watch me work through yeah. the the software and <laughs> yep. and just just see what my thoughts were on where I thought certain functionality would mm-hmm. live in and yep. go from that, which I think is a perfect way to to go about it. Yeah, it doesn't have to be hard, right? Like we you can right. make a mock, you can make real software, or you can make a mock up. I think with you, we might have even gone through Figma mock ups. Did we go through click through mock ups, or was it real software? I think we went through both. Okay. Yeah. Like just doing wireframes or, or using Figma to make mock-ups in a lightweight prototype and then just don't say anything. See what people do. It's agony, right? Yeah. But don't lead the witness. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this is like pretty, pretty special to software, but it's also, it goes without saying that if you have a prototype and it is a consumer product, like having customers interact with it in real time and using it is also a very transferable 
strategy of user feedback and uh, yep. potentially make changes. Yeah, I think the hardware products have an interface as well. Yeah. So fundamentally, it's it's similar, right? You want to see how people grok that interface, what they do with the product. They have users always have amazing ways to just do something that you didn't expect them to do, and you just need to be on the lookout for that. I think the depth and the importance of user research depends on the level of sort of human factors dependency of a product, right? If you're if you're developing like an MP3 player or something. Okay, like you, you want to pay attention to how people use it, but there's lots of predicate designs out there. Um, it's not super high risk if someone doesn't understand how something works at first. Discoverability probably won't, a lack of discoverability of certain features won't hurt people. But if you're designing a surgical tool, like you need to know that doctors understand it very quickly and they're not going to make the wrong move with it. If you're designing the, I don't know, like the control panel for the Apollo lunar module or something, it's okay, they need to understand exactly how this works. So that yeah. when they're like not resourced in an emergency, like on the moon, they know how to take manual control of the thing and land it. And then that happened, right? Yes. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Maybe this is why hardware stuff is fun. It's like there's such an enormous spectrum of different types of products. And as a mechanical engineer, you're like, you like get out and do your career and you're like, okay, I'm ready to design stuff. And it's like, okay, you supposedly have been armed with the ability to design everything from a toothbrush to a 787. And that's wild. It's a super broad and super deep discipline that I find just infinitely fascinating. And I'm like I'm, constantly a beginner. Like I, yeah. I, I know so little about yes. engineering. <laughs> it's crazy. Every day is a humbling experience, yeah. I think. Yep. I completely agree with you. The curiosity continues forever. And yeah. I personally ha share a lot of the feelings that you expressed about mechanical engineering. And it's the reason I chose it. it it's awesome. The opportunities are endless. It's amazing. But yeah, okay. Going through the product life cycle a little bit more, when when you're approaching design cycle more for kind of manufacturability, repairability, life cycle, scalability, all these things, how do you go through thinking of those? So the the DFX uh, yeah. others call is designed for X. <laughs> How do you think through those? And what do you feel is the most important? Because you can't prioritize everything. So in your experience, what has been your approach? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, the very beginning of like the, the, the greenfield part of design should actually have sort of a like a explicit concept development phase too so even before like dfx or whatever mm -hmm. um you need to know how to generate how to evaluate how to like characterize and evaluate a solution space and generate ideas um that you can evaluate in that solution space mm -hmm. um like lots of people do this by brainstorming myself included um at cooper perkins we had a pretty cool uh method of brainstorming um that i've adapted but and it fundamentally, it revolves around bringing some knowledgeable people and some ignorant people together and then writing, think, taking a lot of time to think about what the prompt actually should be. What is the actual question that you're answering with the brainstorm? Mm -hmm. Making sure that you frame that at the right level of specificity, that you get a solution space that is populated fully, like both broad and deep. Um, is there an example that you could potentially give? Yeah. So I don't think it's particularly complicated. Like I think, yeah, I mean, it's very hard for me to come up with a prompt offhand, but it would, a, a typical prompt would be something that is like the major 
are the most risky sort of big bet in a product development effort. So like yep. the core feature, the way to tackle the core technical problem. And then what we would do is just get, we would, as a person preparing that brainstorm, you want to spend a lot of time writing down different prompts and doing your own personal brainstorm to make sure that you, it's not too specific or it's not too general to be useless. And then we present that prompt to a team of engineers, some of whom are familiar with the project, some of whom are not. The role of ignorance is very important and these, you want people that aren't like previously biased to if you learn what a project is about, you very quickly start, you can't help, your, you help yourself. You start coming up with solutions, right? Well, they know nothing about it. And you just present the prompt, the naked prompt without the rest of the baggage of the project, come up with very creative ideas. And so you populate this entire space. And those should be low fidelity ideas, Sharpie sketches on a single piece of paper, given a name and a number, pull that out. And then you cross-pollinate all those ideas and then come up with some ranking system. You do some voting or whatever, you do a pew chart to weigh them against different criteria that you care about. And then that sort of sets the stage for, okay, these are like concept designs that are worth investing engineering effort into. So I would say the first thing is, okay, how does DFX play into that process? Is it a major contributor or is it a secondary concern? You should know that upfront, mm -hmm. right? If it's a sustainability focused product, then that should maybe be in the prompt, right? Maybe be something that you're brainstorming around. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I didn't answer your question at all. I just started just rambling on about brainstorming, but I guess the way that I don't even know if I really think about DFX explicitly, it's more of like a filter that I put a design through. Yeah. It's not something that I'm like primarily optimizing for at the start of many projects, unless it's really centered around that. Definitely. I agree with that because what you said, actually, you did answer my question because I was more trying to understand like how it's prioritized and also in your mind and then also how the process would go about. I completely agree with your assessment on brainstorming. I follow a very similar kind of process. And it's, I think, important to note that very early on, obviously, you should have some level of requirements and mm -hmm. the prompt that you were talking about. And the prompt should involve metrics you care about. I usually call them metrics of just like DFX could be one of them. And then time, cost, Certain things can also be a part of it if you wanted to. But early on, it's probably best to not over-constrain it yeah, yeah. and have yep. a little bit more of an open terrain. Because what I've seen happen, which I find fascinating, is that someone could have an absolutely horrible idea. Like, yeah, yeah. truly doesn't fall in the requirement in any capacity. But that idea triggers a good idea. And else being like, no, like, that won't work. But what if we did this? And when you over-constrain a problem, you cut those branches off without even knowing. Yeah, completely. Like the people think that the value of the brainstorm is have being in the room and like generating the ideas. Anybody can generate ideas. There's actually research that shows that individuals generate better ideas by themselves than brainstormers do. Interesting. Yeah. But I think it ignores the practical element, which is you got to, people have busy lives and they're working on other projects and it's pretty, it's pretty practical thing to get 10 people in a room for half an hour or one hour and be like, okay, ideas go, right? All of the value in my mind is on the preparation for the brainstorm, making sure that you're answering the correct question. And then the post-processing of the brainstorm. Most Definitely. projects do not need genius solutions. Mm -hmm. They need practical solutions, right? So like brainstorming is not about winning some like innovation award right? It, just, it has to work. Um, and there's not many better processes for quickly getting people aligned around 
a project, a problem, and then generating, like populating that solution space so that you can do the super valuable post-processing work. And it should be harebrained ideas. It should be totally non-judgmental. Yep. Right. You can come up with totally wild things. And that stupid idea might cross-pollinate in some mm -hmm. weird way with another idea that gives a, the designer who's actually going to do the work, the sort of courage to go in a direction that unlocks the problem. I completely agree. And you used one of my favorite words, which is practical. That's what my company is called in Turkish. Pratik means practical. Ah, uh, uh, nice. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it's all about that. Truly. It's never the best. It's never the perfect solution. It's the good enough. And you really need to provide space for your team to fly. <laughs> a little. Yeah. And no ideas are discounted at first. And then you pare it down. That's it's very easy to say no to things, right? Everyone's used easy. to saying no to things. Yeah. Right? Harder. Once the ideas get more fleshed out, it'll get harder to say no. But I was talking to another mechanical engineer and she called it killing your darlings. Of <laughs> just There's going to be a lot of emotion that gets connected to ideas yeah, as yeah. you Ego kind of too. go down. Yeah. <laughs> as you go down the line. And I also loved that you mentioned pew charts. They're my absolute favorite decision making or other people would call it decision making matrices. Yep. Yep. Um, I use them religiously in my practice and I actually fun, fun tip for everyone. This is, I think I saw it somewhere, but I feel like it's a creation of my own. So there's also risk matrices, right? And I actually cross pollinate those two and use them with each other because sometimes hmm. when you're looking, when you have a pew chart, so a pew chart, just so people can imagine it, it's basically starts with a column that has all of your metrics in mind. So what you care about in the design, whether yep. it's like how much time it's going to be, the complexity, the carryover potential, et cetera. Yep. And then on the following columns, you have your different options that you're trying to select between. And then you weigh them, you compare them to each other and give a minus one or a plus one, depending on yep. performance. And then it shoots out a mathematical result of one is better than the other. And then you yep. cannot, that can't, that doesn't have to be the end all be all, but it centers the conversation incredibly well. That's the thing is it's always wrong. Actually, it's, the chart yeah. is always wrong and you, it spits out an answer. And you're like, wait, that doesn't, Any it sense. doesn't match what I feel. And then, and then you, and that's then you where the conversation stuff. is. Yeah. Yes. And it's all about that conversation. So it's just a tool to get you talking about the right thing. It's not necessarily like a, a perfect scoring rubric, right? No, it's not. And as you, you're totally right, the first time around, it comes out and you're like, hold on a minute, that doesn't really go with the logic that we've mm -hmm. been talking about and manipulate some of the things that you said of, oh, maybe this isn't right. Oh, this isn't right. And then yeah. it like starts to converge to something. But the reason I combine it with a risk matrix is because sometimes it doesn't take into account. You can have a metric that's called risk, but I feel like that's not good enough. I've oh, done that before. I, where it's, it's clumsy. Like, it's super clumsy. Because it's, it's highly nonlinear. The way yeah, you, exactly. Yeah, it's not a linear ranking no. at all. No, not at all. And also there's just, you might have a set of lists of risks that some of them are not super critical and then the others yep. are severely critical. So what yep. I do is for each of the options, I also write down the risks. And even if one is a winner and the bottom you see, it's all red. Mm -hmm. Like this is like maybe a better option for my metrics, but it's high risk, high reward situation. So I'm going to yeah, go with yeah. a less risk, but good enough solution. And that yep. helps center the decision. Yep. I've tried to do something similar where I like overlay like a range of performance where it's almost like a statistical, like in projects where it's like technology development and you don't know how the thing's going to perform. And you have mm -hmm. different concepts and it's okay, there's, you're ranking it on some performance criteria and then you're like, oh, I don't know. Like, I think it would be like, yeah. I'll put a range actually mm -hmm. and then spit out a range as a score. Oh, 
that's but sad. I played around with that. Ultimately, I think it was a little bit too clumsy. Like I made it and then I showed it to the rest of my team and they were like, what? <laughs> so, but yeah, I, this, it just sounds interesting, this combining the risk overlay on the future. Yeah, it's how I've made decisions with really large engineering teams as long as I can remember since yeah. I started engineering. So yeah, that, that's a really, I'm so happy that you mentioned it because it hasn't come up yet. So this is the first time that it's going to DFX might be one of those criterion in this case too, right? Correct. So you might be post-processing and looking at sustainability or, or whatever, any other DFX parameter. I think in terms of the nitty gritty of design for manufacturability, design for assembly, it's mm -hmm. just a skill set that you need to learn as an engineer. It's not mystical by any stretch you if you're designing for a particular process you need to have a deep knowledge of that process or talk to people that do and then that's how you bootstrap your own knowledge is you one of the first things i did when i was an engineer at this robotic systems integration company right out of college i would just go out to the shop floor all the time and talk mm -hmm. to the guy at the press break because i just had no idea what i was doing with sheet metal parts and I'd bring a printout and just show it to him and he'd be like, that's dumb. Here's why. And you keep yep. digging and then you get knowledge about the process. And that's how you bootstrap your, D, your sort of DFX knowledge. And it's super valuable. It's insanely valuable because the more you bake it into your brain, the earlier you can fold it into your design process and the less. It's not like a Band-Aid that you slap on at the end of the project, right? Projects have inertia. Definitely designs get deeply integrated. They get even harder to change. Con engineering gets concurrent. Like the deeper you get, the closer to manufacturing, the like more handcuffed you are by your own designs Design and your choices. requirements and your sort of requirements maturity at that point. Mm -hmm. And the engineering work to unravel that or to go back one iteration is super nonlinear. Yep. So you want to bake it in as early as possible. Yeah, I feel like the actionable advice here is when you're doing design for manufacturability or repairability, specifically in the manufacturability sense, really knowing what unit quantity that you're going to will help you say, okay, like we're in the prototype phase now, we're like 3D printing these. Obviously, that's not going to be how we make them. Looking at, for example, options of just, are we going to injection mold this? And then talking to those people to understand what the constraints of that are yep, um, yep. early on. And if you can incorporating those designs it, early into even your prototype, even if it's not going to be manufactured with that process, going yeah, that exactly. early on and being inquisitive about it is super important. And in terms of repairability, have your engineers and even if you're a co-founder, you should definitely one, go through a cycle of producing whatever you're making by yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the skill set with an engineer next to you so that you see what goes into it, and then secondly, if it's a repairability that you're looking into, build it, build it and repair, yeah. break something and try to repair it and see how that process goes and how much headache you get early, yep. earliest you can. And yeah, you said one, one thing in there that I think is super important, which is designing such that you can adapt the next iteration easily to the production yeah. process. If it's yeah. a, even if it's a printed part or if it's a CNC machine part, if it's going to be injection molded or cast or, or sheet metal, like designing it with a geometry that is adaptable to that process easily super crucial yeah and usually the early prototyping versions can do anything you can build anything with it yeah. like with some obviously some some edge cases where you probably can't but yep. that won't be your limiting uh, your yep. limiter will come later and if you already have entire system interfaces all flushed out by the to that point you're going to be screwed <laughs> yep and i think ultimately too like this is 
DFX down the stretch when you have something that's like ready to be manufactured is very hard work. Yeah. It, it's like, it's super non-trivial. People don't even take the time to like actually map out what the processes look like for all of their parts. And that's very, that's a super informative process. If you can't actually develop a map of what manufacturing processes create a part, you don't really understand it. I see yeah. people YOLOing entire designs like over the fence to an ODM or a manufacturer. Yeah. And yeah. it just gets really messy. Like you, they end up making things in ways that you didn't expect them to. And that has profound implications for performance. Definitely. That are hard to communicate sometimes. Definitely performance and also cost. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. The OEMs are, especially if you're outsourcing, which most small hardware products will have to because it, it, there's all, a lot of cost constraints there. If you don't put in the work ahead, it's going to bite you and your unit cost is going to go up significantly and also potentially break your business model. So there's mm -hmm. like this crazy domino effect into the business that comes through not being able to think of this early on. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, and if you get if you if the factory is doing your some subset of design for manufacturability, they're not often doing that with the same level of engineering rigor that you mm. that your product demands necessarily. And I don't mean that like disparagingly. I think these factories have lots of expertise, particularly in specific processes. Definitely. Yeah. But if you hand them a design that doesn't at all comport with the way they make things, and then you give them agency to change it to match the way they make things. Uh, it's it gets really ugly really yeah. quickly. I've seen that happen on so many products, and it's just a nightmare because you get a prototype back, and you're like, "Oh my god!" Like I can't believe they they this made it completely this way. different. Yeah, I cannot believe they made it this way. This is why you need to go to your get boots on the ground, have people in the factory, which is why COVID was so crazy for a lot of people. There's a podcast with my old Formula SAE classmate AJ AJ Cooper who runs. I think he's like head of engineering at Lyft Transportation, like doing the mm -hmm. bikes. Uh, and he was talking about this very thing about if you don't see it getting made, you have no idea how it's made. Like boots on the ground in the factory is the only way to do that. Yeah, that level of accountability is a crucial for OEMs. And also uh, another less important, but still I think important point there too, is if you're outsourcing that part, the DFX part on your product to an OEM, you're also losing a lot of institutional knowledge there that needs to exist for the company to sustain itself for next gen products. Yeah. It's, it's also critical that happens in house. Yeah, completely agree. And then I think there's sort of two levels of DFM. There's design for a particular process, which is necessary and somewhat valuable. But I think like the real value is in eliminating parts. Yes. This is where you win. Like engineers love to optimize parts that shouldn't exist. It's just like this fun game that people get super obsessed doing and they lose sight of the fact that like the entire part or the entire module could be eliminated or could be combined into one monolithic part. And like those things, you're not really good. You're not going to get that level of DFA, design for assembly or whatever, mm -hmm. from an OEM, really. Correct. Um, you're going to get the like, how do I run this design through a filter that matches my processes versus that holistic thinking is something that like your engineering team needs to own. And that's where all of the value Correct. in DFMA is, in my opinion. Absolutely. OEMs should be used for their strength, which is building. Yeah. Um, and if it goes beyond that, you're going to suffer in, I feel, many facets. 
of product design. So moving towards common pitfalls and failures you've seen in the design process, could you talk to some of those? I'm sure that you've seen trends after working through all of this. Yeah, I think not knowing what the thing needs to do, right? So not having like a cogent acknowledgement of requirements or imprisoning yourself with the requirements we've already talked about abandoning your requirements, like thinking about it as a static document that you write one time and then you just forget about. And like, this is going to sound like I'm some like requirements driven lunatic. Like I'm really not, I don't think it has to take up that much burden, but like it's important to know what the thing you're designing is supposed to do and have a shared conception of that across the team. I think the, one of the biggest mistakes I see is not prioritizing, um, not de-risking the product in the right, the design in the right order. Totally. It's like kicking the can down the road on certain fundamental technological problems or product development problems is a super big and common risk. I think people often like to integrate the product like into something that looks like the final product way too soon when they should be staying modular. You should be, because it gives you the illusion of progress. Yeah. Right. Like you make a thing that is product like, and you're like, we're so close to getting this to the market. But that can really trick you into thinking that you've made more progress than you actually have. So I'm always trying to get teams to slice and dice the key, like key risks yep. into modules. Like at Cooper Perkins, we called them like breadboards. Like even, it's not, not an electronics breadboard, but like a hardware breadboard and like roadkill prototypes, basically. So mm-hmm. don't pull stuff together until you absolutely have to at the end. And when you're doing that, it shouldn't be a risky process. Yeah, yeah. Right. It shouldn't, you should not, you should have like zero technical, fundamental technical hurdles left when you're like making the looks like, works like, made like prototype. Yep. You shouldn't be de risking things at, that are that fundamental at that state. You should be de risking manufacturing process and assembly order and like problems of integration, but yes. not problems of technology. I see that as a big mistake. I think oftentimes that sort of rhymes also with people not understanding that they're doing technology development versus product development. So technology development, in my opinion, is, and this is, again, informed by Cooper Perkins' work for me. But I think, so the founder of of Cooper Perkins, Gerhard, used to say, I don't remember how you put it, but it's basically like technology development is everything that happens before you know your requirements. And there's, there's, in some sense, there's always a top level requirement. It's like for the Apollo program, it's to get to the moon. Like you want to do the thing, but it's how do we do this? We need like an engine we need to figure out that whole thing. We need like a launch vehicle and like a lander. And there's, you're trying to figure out if something is possible or not. That's fundamentally different than product development. Product development is, Hey, I have a list of things that I need to do. Mm -hmm. And it's about executing on that list. Yep. And that list, for lack of a better one, is your PRD. Yeah. So I see people like forgetting to do technology development first and then letting it like starting this steep product development process that like leads to integrated products that are made like production processes or, or are close to the final design and then not de-risking some fundamental technology until it's too late. And that just goes horribly wrong. It like sinks companies. It's It yeah. demotivates the hell out of engineering teams. It like completely bricks your progress. Yeah. Um, so that's the most common things that I see. Maybe some finer points would be like not being intentional with why you're prototyping and like what your prototype is intended to do for you. You're trying to learn from it. Yeah. Every project is going to have a lot of issues. Yeah. So what you want to do is you want to discover and resolve those issues in the right, in the most efficient path. 
And so my contention typically is, okay, de-risk the riskiest and highest impact things first. Sure. Yeah. It's not complicated. So (laughs) make a prototype to do that Mm -hmm. and do it at a level of fidelity that only does that. It does nothing else. Yep. Right. And so naturally, as you do that, you will start hitting the longer tail of risks. And the longer tail of risks is those things that are involved in integration. Does it fit together? Is it manufacturable in these ways? And then you get into like cosmetic stuff. Like, are there knit lines on this injection molded part? Is it, do we cover them with a sticker? But that's not really like the major thing that the product is doing. Like most products are not just looking beautiful. They're doing a job. And you need to be super intentional with how you like as a PM or a leader, a hardware leader, like running these programs, how you like slice and dice the milestones yeah. to de-risk in the correct order and do it in such a way that you always maximize for design flexibility throughout that process. Because you have this, again, that we've talked about this, but like this highly non-linear thing, projects build up this inertia and the, your ability to roll back designs and solve seemingly simple problems when everything is deeply integrated, it, you can really handcuff yourself in a heartbeat. Look, you look at, I think the biggest and best example of this is military programs, like defense acquisition yeah. programs, right? So if you look at like the F-35, for instance, they were like, we're going to be like, we're going to get this developed super fast by doing concurrent engineering. That's a feature and not a bug. And it's basically like, everyone's going to go off and design completely side by side with no thought for what's the most important thing to de-risk first. And like the F-35 is a, I don't know, $1.2 trillion program. Yeah. It's like GDP level stuff. And it's a plane and that can go horrifically wrong. So there's a book that I just read. I think I can't remember the author's name, but I think it's called How Big Things Get Done. And it's essentially like an analysis of projects and the ways in which they go wrong effectively oh, nice. and what, what he's developed a database of projects and you see this highly non-linear long tail of cost overages depending on the types of projects and one of the things that he talks about is think slow act fast mm-hmm. which i really love and the what we were talking about earlier with like people ignoring requirements and just starting to make stuff that is acting fast as, yeah like it's just not thinking at all. Yeah, like thinking fast yeah. and also acting fast, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And his point is like the duration of that the that the doing part of the execution part of the project that window is open is the duration during which mistakes happen. So yep. what you really want to do is minimize that time. And but the problem is planning doesn't feel like progress. Correct, especially for engineers. Yeah, totally. Nobody wants to do it. So I think when he's he has a handful of typically infrastructure programs that he's looking at that demonstrate this, like the California High Speed Rail Project and many other things. But I think the same guidance applies to smaller projects, to hardware projects too. Yeah, I really love the journey that you just t- took us on with this because I completely agree. I want to make a particular comment on one thing you said, which is regarding de-risking. It, when I think of common pitfalls, I really think about very similar stuff, which is the the requirements part and then the risk mm-hmm. part. And I think another way to describe what you're saying is when you don't do your proper risk mitigation early on and with your subsystems or subcomponents, what you run the risk of, you actually add risk to the pro- program, um, is what happens is when you have a fully integrated system and you're testing for the first time for a specific risk, might have risk coupling that's happening. Oh, where- yeah. 
You yep. don't know you don't know what is causing the failure. And one of the most important things in risk mitigation is the identification of the failure, yep. that kind of root cause analysis yep. that you completely cripple yourself in yep. by not being able to perfectly compartmentalize what risks you're trying to de-risk on a subsystem or subcomponent level. Yeah. And it's all, I completely agree. There's complex systems are difficult to debug. Yeah. Um, and they're almost, they almost follow like a diagnosis of exclusion. Yes. Uh, yes. Pathway where you, it's very easy to rule things out, but it's hard mm -hmm. to get directly at what the core of the problem is. And that you're, that's the main purpose you would be doing testing in the first place. So you yeah. cut your legs off before you can yep. start running. So it's super important to be able to de-risk. And I do agree that most, the co most common pitfall is the lack of planning that comes with that. Has. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I feel like I've been involved in so many programs where we're like, things are going wrong and we don't, hold up. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I guess maybe the value, just, I'm just processing this now, but the value of proving out things at a subsystem level or in a more modular architecture is that you have preempted that diagnosis of exclusion, what does work and what doesn't work before things are integrated. So mm -hmm. you're subset of root causes or you've trimmed, you've bounded the space of root causes in some sense. It, it, it helps with the failure mode analysis too. If you mm -hmm. have all of those tests, you can add it to your failure mode analysis being like this lip is too long and it might get caught in this other system, which could cause yep. the motor to fail, say. Yep. And then when it happens, you're like, it's probably that let's, let's yep. make it a little less or get rid of it entirely. And then totally. you do it again and it works or it still doesn't work. And you're like, okay, what the hell? Completely. But yeah, it's I, I think that that is a key component of all of the things that you mentioned. So I appreciate you you bringing it up and talking through that. You can eat so much time not knowing what's going on. It's yeah. crazy. Oh, yeah. And oh, everyone will have a different opinion and yeah. circular, circular conversations. And it just it becomes yep. a not fun time to have. to. I think this hardware. is fundamentally different about hardware as well, too, versus software. And this is not my original thinking here. My buddy Jake actually talks about this. He frames software as being all about testing edge cases mm. and like your failures are in like this like tree of edge cases mm -hmm. and then hardware is it's the core use case that's where you yeah. see the failures it's, right? it's true but the failure modes are opaque many times like we were i was working on a boat it was a prototype boat years ago and we were using we were like hacking together we were using a jet ski propulsion system to drive this catamaran and we were making some modifications to that jet ski propulsion system. And there was this engine pod and we were having cavitation at this inlet on this jet. And we couldn't figure out why the boat wouldn't go over, I don't know, whatever, 25 knots or something like that. And it took us like months to figure it out. Months. It was infuriating. It's, and I, in hindsight, I wish that we'd broken down that design problem into more bite-sized chunks where we mm -hmm. de-risk the performance of different elements. And there was this gigantic technical risk, which is, hey, can we hack a jet ski into being the propulsion system on this prototype boat? Does that work or not? And we didn't do that first. We made the whole boat. Oh. Yeah. It was a prototype. It was a one-off prototype. And, but still, I've made these mistakes way too many times. Yeah. It's quite common. And 
for like very well-funded or big companies, this is not as big of an issue. It's not a life or death situation. Mm. You're a nimble startup and you just raised a new fund and your investors are waiting for you to de deliver on certain outputs mm -hmm. that you promised through that. This could truly be a, a company killer. You haven't met your mark. You're probably going to have to fundraise again. And they're going to come back with the question of why didn't you do this? How can we trust you to actually deliver now? Yep. So definitely super important. This podcast is presented to you by Pratik, a startup advising and coaching company that is geared to help hardware entrepreneurs get their ideas from a napkin sketch into a lab and out into the world. Okay, with that, I want to go into a quick podcast break where we do a segment on hardware hacks. So basically, we're going to take a, take a quick break and share some fun or interesting hardware hacks that either listeners can try at home or if they're building products, they can try it out or involve it in their product design cycle. Will, do you have any hardware hacks that you'd like to share with our listeners? Totally. I think some of them are hacks and some of them are probably just frustrating advice. We, we think, welcome both. <laughs> yeah. The first, I'll lead with the frustrating advice. If you're a mechanical engineer, you should learn how to code in MATLAB or Python. Just full stop. It's super powerful. I see a lot of people that like forget the math. The math is a hack. The math is the ultimate. Mm -hmm. It's like the thing that lets you represent the system without building it and see how it behaves. It's like insanely powerful. And lots of engineers get out of school and they just put down linear algebra. They're like, woo, good thing I got through that. And I'll never have to use that again. And then they get to a project where it's okay. There's a kinematic system they need to design. And it's okay. You can do this with math. It's actually not that hard. I'm not good at Python, but I know it well enough to solve mechanical engineering issues. And it looks like magic to people that don't know how to do that. So Very number one, first, first principles and the math to back it up is mm -hmm. the ultimate mechanical engineering hack. And if you lose that, you've put away, you've just abandoned the gigantic portion of your toolkit as an engineer. You're so right. First principles come back to the plate every yep. single time. Yep. And it's just, and you don't really even... I hear people being like, I never use calculus. It's that's stupid. And it's, of course you do. Like calculus yeah. is like the math of change. It's the yeah. language of change. And like every system is, many systems are dynamic. And so whether or not you're like, you don't do, I'm not like solving definite integrals as part of my project or whatever, right? Yeah. That's silly. But even your mental models for how things should behave are based on calculus, right? Like motion. Yeah. The right. entire intuition around how certain things behave when they're moving is yeah. based on that. Position, velocity, acceleration, jerk, snap, crackle, pop. Yeah. Those are all time derivatives. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I want that to be a sweatshirt or something. And also, um, that was the most poetic way to describe calculus. That was. Oh, I think beautiful. that's. I think that's the Steven's, math of change. Yeah, it's Stephen Strogatz's language. Actually, I think he's. I think he's like a mathematician out of. I don't remember where Cornell or something. Amazing. Um, he has a really good book called like the Joy of Calculus or something like that. I love that. That's yeah. It's super powerful. So that's my number one hardware hack. Don't forget the math. Let's see. All of that said, CAD is an amazing calculator in a pitch. Yeah. You know. Especially for mechanism design, the, the humble CAD sketch, a nice hack, a good place to prove out the motion of a dynamic system, a really lightweight playground. I think brainstorming is a hack. I think there's lots and lots of manufacturing hacks like in the shop 
little things that I like to do that are maybe just you develop your own style for prototyping. But I think people sort of underestimate what you can do with simple tools in a shop and a printer. Yeah. So like a printer is actually an amazing tool. Printing a one-to-one scale drawing of something and then gluing it to a piece of metal and then cutting that on the bandsaw and then using it as a drill press template. Um, Oh, yeah. You can do a ton in the shop if you have some like Super 77 glue and a really good printer. And paper can wrap around objects too. So like I used to do composites work and we would be cutting these tubes in different geometries and I would scale a print uh, just slightly such that the thickness of the paper itself was considered when you were doing bending and then you wrap it around a composite form and then do some cuts based off of that template. So I don't know, it's pretty easy to get caught up into everything has to have a crazy tolerance in order to be a useful part. I just think that's not true. If you just get into a shop and you learn how to use a bridge port and you can make like paper templates. There's really good resources for this too. If you, there's a YouTube channel with a guy named Paul Brody, who's like a bike frame builder. Mm. And he just has, he's just like a master sort of home shop fabricator. He has a Bridgeport mill and he has a lathe and he has a welder. But, but realistically, like compared to manufacturing facilities with CNC machines and lathes and all this stuff, it's not actually high tech. It's like really old school. Yeah. As long as you know how to use it. Yeah, exactly. Use a rotary table on your mill. He makes beautiful parts and they're complicated. He makes brake levers. These are like non-trivial geometries. And if you can just use your math and be creative and use a printer, make templates, figure out how to measure things appropriately, that's infinitely valuable. I don't know. There's probably many more hardware hacks that I've used over the years, but those are the First paper paper is coming about as a pretty pretty decent hack. I <laughs> in in, a, in an episode with Bridget, she also uses paper for wire routing. Uh, oh, cool! I think it's I think it's a a thread that I'm picking up on. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a it's an it's a unique interface for certain types of problems. Definitely, you can overlay. I guess just scale one to one scale drawing is really valuable like for especially for people that get lost i get lost in cad sometimes and i see totally forget how big the thing is yeah right and there's always this maybe this is what it is paper steps outside of the constraint space placed on designers by the by tools right so if you look at and you see this as particularly in automotive right like the tools used to design a car had a heavy impact on the shape of the car So like you look at like a Jaguar in the 1930s and it's beautiful. It's like super swoopy and there's not a flat surface on it. It's all compound curves and it's made by these like master tool and die guys, right? They're not in CAD. They're like making wooden forms or whatever to like Mm -hmm. match sheet metal parts do. And then you see CAD come in and everything becomes a box. Yeah. Right. It's like we design in CAD now. Okay. Flat surfaces, planes, we can establish those pretty easy. Compound curves are really hard. So you get, I mean, I think you still get equally rad designs, you, but you get things that look like a Volkswagen Scirocco or like yeah. an Audi Quattro. They're <laughs> awesome, but they're like angular. Yeah. Uh, and then you get like this proliferation of capability in CAD tools that lets you do sweeps and surface modeling mm-hmm. grows and you get things like people who get obsessed with making curves because the tool makes it easy for them to do that. And you end up with horrible designs like a 1996 Ford Taurus. It looks like a frog. It's all bubbly and it's all stupid. And and paper just has 
this ability to just step outside of that constraint space and be like, okay, you're just drawing, you can draw whatever. So maybe it's uniquely valuable because it sidesteps that. I, I love that perspective. I agree that I, I had never thought about it that way. Very cool. I think also other, ha other hardware hacks are coming to me here as we're talking. The water jet machine mm -hmm. is maybe like my favorite, one of my favorite processes early in prototyping. Yeah. Um, the underdog it, of the machine shop. Yeah. It just, it just, it's insane. It, it cuts everything and you don't really need to worry about it. And it's super cheap and there's no setup cost. Basically, there's no tooling required. And if you design for, maybe the hack here is like designing for 2D processes only yeah. early mm -hmm. on and being really creative with that. So if you're making a weldment or something like that, mm -hmm. doing like tab and slot fixturing so that you can take like a bunch of 2D components and very quickly index them, self-fixture mm -hmm. them relative to each other and then tap them over or whatever. So the water jet is just it's like infinitely flexible prototyping tool. You can make flexures, you can make all kinds of different components. Very cool. Okay. Uh, so to move away from the segment and into a little bit more discussion. So I wanted to get your thoughts, and I'm sure that you get asked this quite a bit, around the future of design and management and progress management and how potentially AI can influence mm. the way we design in mm -hmm. the future and how it'll get integrated. Because it's the new hype train right now. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then you have Elon Musk and others writing letters to say, please yeah, stop pause. the development of this. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's scary. So yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I think we need to get the basics, at least as engineers in our particular field, we somehow have managed to not get the basics right first. Yeah. Um, so that's fundamental to me. And that's really why FiveFluid exists. Is we want to make it easy to have a rich visual conversation about things that are hard to describe with words. I see lots of people like writing Jira tickets that describe a hardware issue and it's move the, move the, reduce the length of the M3 bolt so it doesn't clip the flange. And it's like, where, what are you talking which? about? <laughs> yeah. Which flange, which bolt, huh? And so that's the reason why we want to bake this capability into CAD so everyone can see what you're talking about and you have a way to reference the design. I think that's foundational, but I think the release process, like I'm a little bit torn, like I hear people espousing agile for hardware and I'm a little bit, I think maybe you're one of these voices too, actually. So like you probably have a good perspective on this, but I think certain hardware development, it fundamentally is not software development. Correct. The value of discovery in hardware is not the same as it is in software. Yep. And so going whole hog, like full agile feels a little bit too much for me. I think there's the fundamentally the way I see it is you want to, you want to reduce the cost and complexity of iterating, right? That's the lens that I see it on. And FiveFluid is built to help teams do that in a variety of like super practical ways, primarily involving just communication about yeah. common engineering issues and design reviews. So I think there's still tons of headroom to get that right. Give engineers better tools to iterate faster. There are many other problems. There's a lot of, a common iterative cycle is like conceive, design, build, test, deliver in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not all just issue tracking, right? You have to make things, you have to design things. And so there's improvement probably at every phase. I think AI is going to play some role in all of those phases. It's hard to know what the most valuable part is. For us, like I would love to get to a place where we can provide some level of intelligence in checking people's designs, right? Mm. If right now we have drawing review software and that's people manually reviewing each other's 
work, but like aspirationally, it doesn't have to be that way in the future, right? I think there's much more low hanging fruit in terms of just basic coordination, reducing coordination and communication costs that we're working on today. So like auto checking a drawing doesn't feel like the highest value thing when people are still like writing Adobe comments and emailing them different versions of the drawing back and forth. It's like, maybe we should solve that first, right? So that's what we're doing. But yeah, AI is the new hotness. I think where I see it, I think some people think that AI is already happening deeply in, in mechanical engineering. They conflate topology optimization on the design side with AI. It's not really, it's not AI. And so the, and I see AI working very well, like, you know, obviously you see large language models like GPT-4 or whatever, and they're super promising and people are using them for marketing and copywriting and all kinds of stuff, practical Mm -hmm. stuff today. And then you see things on the artistic side, like the stable diffusions and the dollies of the world. And they're incredible, but they're not, what I haven't seen is something that suits engineering deeply in terms of design. CAD is a parametric space. Yep. Is it, is generating an image is a different problem than generating a CAD file. Yeah. And I'm sure some of the major CAD companies have looked into this, probably non-trivial training data problems in order to get that work. And also IP issues, right? Get it. There's IP issues up and down all over the place for all of this, right? right. I, I feel like for 3D models, though, it's a little bit more niche and it's more protected because it's niche under, yeah. uh, but maybe that's a naive comment. What's the difference between a designer, a mechanical designer gaining inspiration about a mechanism and an artist gaining inspiration about a piece? True. You might see some contemporaries painting in a particular way and then you you develop your own style musicians all nothing is new right since nothing is new right so people are these algorithms are doing something that rhymes with human creativity yeah in a way but it's what's troubling is when they can output things that are more akin to blatant (laughs) ripoffs than inspired design and they're so opaque that it's difficult to prevent that in a lot of circumstances. If I was a big famous artist, I would be pretty bummed if some algorithm ingested all of my work. Yeah. Uh, now I hold that feeling simultaneously also while being like, holy crap, look at what you can do with these incredibly capable tools. Look yeah. at how much knowledge is embodied in them. It's a tough so, one. <laughs> it's a super tough one. You and can't I can't have make... a kind of mono opinion about it. It's, it's yeah. It, constantly a pull and push of just what is right this is cool but it's scary and unfair but super innovative and can truly change the way that humanity progresses and yeah now all of that said i think there maybe is some low-hanging fruit i think we've talked about this in the past but like the amount of time cad is a very capable tool but the amount of time to realize an idea is pretty long in CAD, particularly for complicated parts. And that's not necessarily super fun work. Yeah. Um, like that's not, when I think about like the joy of mechanical engineering, I'm not, it's not making sure the sweep functionality works in SolidWorks. Then like I have the correct 3D guide path sketch. It's like, ugh, gag yeah. with a spoon. That's awful. Like I just want the part to be, the fun is like the thing is in your hand and you're putting it together, right? Totally. Like you go from the conception to like the engineering work to make it work, the math, the analysis, and then like, you do a design and in some sense, the CAD work can be fun up to a point. Yeah. So I think it was an, was it an NVIDIA team that put out a tool that like would let you go text to 
point cloud model. Oh, I'm unsure, but that sounds I think, amazing. Yeah, I think this exists. I think you can describe, I want a green tree frog with extra big toes and it would like make an STL file for you. Wow. Now that's cool, but like how good is an STL to a mechanical engineer? Not great, right? Like what you need to know exactly what size it is. You need to be able to modify the design. Maybe there's a pathway there where somebody figures out a translation from sort of raw STLs or point clouds or OBJs or some, yeah, some non-parametric format to something that becomes parameterized where you can have a model tree or structure to actually. I feel like it is closer than we think, honestly. Yeah. I don't know. It's, that strikes me as a different problem than these large language models. And I'm not sure how many people are actually working on it and who's incentivized to work on it. Mm -hmm. It's in some sense, the dynamics of the CAD market change this a little bit. It's not text is so universal. It's like if you're a copywriter, if you're a marketer, if you're like a blogger, right? Like a large language model becomes useful to you immediately. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a, also, it's a search engine in some sense, right? It's an embodiment of human knowledge. So it's, so the user race is whatever, like mm -hmm. everybody, right? But the amount of people that like deal with 3D files on their day-to-day -day basis is like a vastly reduced subset of those people. Yeah. So I, that said, I have talked to some up and coming entrepreneurs that are looking at the sort of auto complete for CAD that I think is really cool. It's like many parts are not particularly difficult to describe. And so yeah. text to a model strikes me as a reasonable next step. Like I want a 90 degree angle bracket with four hole, four quarter inch holes drilled on each side in specifically steel. standard hardware. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Yep. I think that's coming soon ish. All that said, I don't know who's doing it. Do mm. you? I don't know about autocomplete. I know that exometry, like for quoting purposes, mm -hmm. I think we'll be employing some AI tools to generate what, how yeah. a thing would be made. So yep. it's, it's tangentially related, not quite what we, we are talking about. Yeah. I think a lot of these developments are in stealth right now, just because I think there's an apprehension because the hype train is getting very, very hyped. And it's this kind yep. of growing industry that people don't yep. know how to deal with and ethically regulate. <laughs> so it, it's a tough space to I feel like there's a good amount of risk right now. But I feel like in terms of AI implementing itself into the process of modern hardware development, it could be a tool to really speed it up uh, yeah. rather than be a replacement or I think it will augment on top of it rather. Yeah, than... I don't see a direct path to it being the designer in the way that you would see for something like stable diffusion. But I do see a direct path to analysis type work and programming yes. work. I, I use Python and like. I've used Simulink and other tools in the past, simulation tools. And realistically, like lots of times what you want is not that hard. You want to give me a model of a spring mass damper system with a subcritical damping coefficient, or give me a model, give me a quarter car model for a vehicle. And these things are modular, like they're not that hard. So before. They, they've been they done before out there. And exactly. So if someone's doing it for the first time, it's a long process for them to potentially get there. If they yep. just describe it and get it, that's a huge win, yep. I think. Yeah. And then tweak it, right? You still need to know how to, of how course. these things work. You can tweak the model, but I would love to see that. I think there's probably also a room for a kind of like a delinter for CAD or something that auto checks your CAD. But again, you need a CAD data set mm. and getting a CAD data set is 
getting a, sorry, getting a big CAD data set is not hard. Like we could scrape yeah. it faster. Yeah. But getting a useful CAD data set might be hard. That's I don't know. I haven't thought deeply enough about it. Yeah, like um, maybe grab CAD and just like download that entire library. Um, yeah, but, but part of like, it is like... It's noise. There's the how do signal you, to noise ratio is tough. There's a billion different ways to design a bracket yep. in a ton of different processes. So what's yep. a useful... And like that layer of what is the application of this even? Hmm. What are the environmental conditions that it's working against? What are the force profile it's working against? Hmm. There's so much to it. So... I really appreciated your on all of this, Will. And in terms of I always I tried to ask my speakers at the end of just do you have any advice for hardware builders, hardware entrepreneurs, people who are trying to build a physical product? Mm. Just any advice that you'd give as parting words? Oh, man, I think the first thing I'd like to give advice on is maybe not to the builders like building something novel, but to individual engineers like early in their career or even mid-career. I think that one thing that's really helped me is almost being like deviously selfish in a way where if you see a problem that you want to tackle and you want to use that problem as an opportunity to stretch your legs, figure out how to do that. And so this works really well when you have a good project manager, but like I wanted to learn Python mm -hmm. and I was horrible at it. Right. And so I think I was learning it on a particular project and I was like, oh, I found a juicy problem that I wanted to solve in Python. And I knew I could have done it in a day in the spreadsheet, basically. And instead, I think I talked to the PM on that project at the time. And I was like, listen, like I'm learning Python. I want to try this. Can you give me some, like extra leeway and some space here to try to solve it with this new tool? And I think if you can do that on every project you're ever involved in through your entire career, you, it's this growth mindset, right? So you get 3% increase in capability like every mm -hmm. quarter or whatever. And then seven years later, you have all these engineering superpowers and it's totally rad. That's that. just an approach that I would advise younger engineers to take. And it doesn't necessarily have to be devious. You can ask for permission, but sometimes maybe don't ask for permission, just solve it how you want to solve it. So that leads to growth and leads to excitement. And it's such a big field. And if you do that, it stays interesting. It stays fun. It stays beautiful. So I would say that's, honestly, that's what I care about the most is, yeah, is helping mean, it. That, yeah, it's just helping good. engineers. This is the reason I do all the writing. This is like yeah. the, the brand of Five Food is about educating engineers, right? Like our product is not just our software. Our product yeah. is our engineering guide. It's our online calculators. It's our perspective of, about how things should be done. It's these conversations with people like you. And so... That's maybe the thing that I care the most about. Like, I think we should, I would love to have another episode with you at some point where we talk about engineering education in depth, because I think there's so much room for improvement. I would love to do that because it's, it comes, so even though this is geared towards builders and it is geared towards engineers as well, it's also geared to entrepreneurs that are mm -hmm. building companies alongside their product. It's a different problem set. And yep. when building a company, I think providing, knowing that your engineers are your greatest asset and providing them space and time and resources to build on their capabilities alongside building your product is very critical. And I think coming out of that, like I would give the advice to entrepreneurs and co-founders who are hiring engineers, whether they're mid-career, whether they're early career, the learning never ends. If you're a mid-career engineer and you feel like, oh, crap, like <laughs> I haven't done that in the past decade, it's never too late to start. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, there's just one more thing too, which is like, a, I guess, a flip side of this coin, having been a pure engineer for a lot of my career and now being an entrepreneur and being a founder, I just have profound respect for people that build new things, build companies. Yeah. It's incredibly hard. 
it's super rewarding. The highs are extremely high. The lows are extremely low. Yep. And I think engineers would, engineers sometimes like to be the smartest person in the room. They sometimes lack empathy for the ways in which other people's work can be extremely difficult too. I, right? yep. I'm a pretty good mechanical engineer. I can do quite a lot. I feel very comfortable in that space. And then marketing for me has been a big learning curve, super steep learning curve yeah. and hard in like very like weird and opaque ways. And so as a founder, I have all these new jobs that yeah. are, are really challenging and they're challenging in totally different ways than typical engineering problems are challenging. And so I think empathy across yes. disciplines is always a plus. I really love that. That's it's, It is so true. And being able to understand that beyond the scope of your work, there's a lot of pieces and the mm -hmm. puzzle pieces that are moving around that are trying to make the very complex technological thing that an engineer is working for yeah. actually have a purpose. And yeah, like, trying to bring something to life. It's not just yeah. making it, right? It's not it's just like, making it. If it doesn't make it in the world and people aren't using it or it's not generating something for people to use, then yeah. it, it just goes to waste. So it's making change in the world. And that's engineering is one small subset set of that and marketing exactly. and it's sales important, and everything else. But and a, lot, a, viable a lot of components. Model. Yep. Definitely. And yep. that's what we're trying to cover here at the Builder Circle. It's cool. uh, like hardware products and all the pieces of the puzzle that lead up to that existing in the world. Thank you so much, Will. This was a wonderful yeah. conversation and discussion. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been really awesome. All right, you've made it to the too long didn't listen TLDL section of this episode. So I'll just be reading down a list of the key takeaways that I was able to extract from this episode. It was very content heavy and there was a lot of really good chunks related to product design. So hopefully these will be really helpful when you are embarking on your product design journey. There are two extremes when it comes to engineering design requirements. Most most people either over over constrain or under constrain their design space, and the right answer is likely in between. So you should know know your use cases and generate a PRD, which is a, a product requirements document, without a lot of prescribed numbers. You should and you should start with a core subset of non negotiable or known values to reflect the strong hypotheses of what people are working on. So you likely have a product that you feel is important and there are certain parts of the product that are known, whether it's dimensions or like what temperature it needs to operate in or who needs to use it and what capacity. So there will be known values that you should definitely put down and categorize as non-negotiable. And then you'll have a lot of other things that you will need to figure out throughout the, the design and iteration process. So writing all of those down will be important. And then most importantly, don't put away your requirements after you write them down and keep updating as you learn more. It should be a living document. And as you learn, as you test, as you prototype, you should always come back to it and reevaluate the values that you put in or the statements that you made. User studies have a, a pretty bad signal to noise ratio, meaning that you get a lot of feedback that is not useful. So it's really important to have your company priorities and focus and mission pretty set so that you can parse through the data and utilize the ones that are the most uh, important and will really contribute to what will make your product the most successful. Best research is what your customers do with your product. So basically, when you're doing user studies, providing your customer with the product and not leading the witness. So not leading and not giving them any information, but basically telling them this is the problem that you have. This is supposed to solve it. Go and use it. 
And then that itself will generate a lot of really useful data of what people struggle with, which what part they thought was which and so on and so forth. So watch how they interact with it. And then when it comes to DFX, it's an important consideration when going through your product design process. However, it should act more as a metric and filter rather than being in the driver's seat. And obviously, this is product dependent. If the product is obviously an improvement that centers around a DFX problem, then the approach would differ. But in general, that's not the case. So starting the design process without a lot of requirements and with an open terrain and open brainstorm can really help generate a lot of ideas. I mentioned this in the episode, but basically, I've had moments where someone really came up with a horrible idea, but it triggered someone else to come up with a really, really good one. So it's really important to not stifle the team early on. And even the bad ones can lead to someone else thinking about a winner. Utilize pew charts when thinking about metrics you care about in your design process. Also try to combine a risk matrix to ensure that you're aware of lower level risks you're taking when you select that one design over the other. Pew charts are very valuable. They're very commonly used in the design decision making. So highly uh, recommend utilizing those when trying to make uh, design decisions that require a lot of thought and a lot of priorities that are uh, going around. If you are trying to learn about how your design will perform in terms of manufacturability, go to your crystal ball and predict what different manufacturing techniques could be used when scaling to higher volumes and be inquisitive around those manufacturing techniques. Ask experts and techs on how the current design won't work. So this is basically saying if you have a design and you want to scale it up and you know that you're going to scale it one day, thinking through what kinds of manufacturing techniques could be used to actually scale it and then say, okay, say you're going to have to die cast it, learn about die casting, learn about the design considerations around that. Is it even able to be die casted? So on and so forth and be inquisitive so that you learn your constraints, learn the constraints that your design is causing early on so that you can uh, potentially make changes or at least know what you're getting into. When it comes to repairability, have your engineers and even your co-founder build and repair the product. As a co-founder, you should definitely, one, go through a cycle of producing whatever you're making by yourself. And if you don't have the skill set, do it with an engineer next to you so that you know what goes into it. And then secondly, if it's repairability, build it, break it, repair it, and see how the process goes and how much headache you, you get as early as, as possible. When designing, develop a map of what manufacturing processes for each component will require and then what assembly will look like. This will be really eye-opening into what you may need to change. So never throw your design to an OEM or a contract manufacturer before doing this because you will lose that battle in the end because you should be the expert in your product and you should at least have an idea of what the manufacturing processes should look like. And even you should have an in-house process that you know very well and all of the time it takes for each process too, because those will all be negotiation tokens that you can use with the OEM or the contract manufacturer if you choose to outsource later on. Big value in design is to reduce the number of parts and OEMs won't be able to make that decision on, they won't be able to make that decision correctly. And sometimes they might not be incentivized to because the more your part costs often, it's better for them. Sometimes they make a better margin. But overall, it's important to know what trade-offs you're making. 
The most common mistake is to kick key risks down the line, but it should be front front and loaded. So don't start building until you have de-risk components. Otherwise, you'll risk coupling those. And what that means is if you have component level risks that you haven't de-risked earlier on in your program, and then you go on and assemble and have an integrated system, you're going to go on and test that. And what's going to happen is it could break and it could fail, which is very normal because you're taking on a lot of risk. But the problem is you won't be able to do root cause analysis on it because you don't know which component broke or which of the failure modes actually happened. So it's important to be able to decouple them and systematically de-risk early on. Technology development and product development are two very different things, and technology development needs to happen before requirement development. So that's basically like if there are any fundamental research questions that need to be answered around the product that you're developing, that goes into technology development and even capability development. And those need to happen before you start generating product requirements so that you are attacking the product design in a systematic way. Always have intentions with your prototyping. It can be for de-risking, seeing the fit, observing user experience, etc. But all of your prototypes should have a reason of existing. When figuring out your milestones and leading product programs, always optimize for design flexibility because as you learn more, more changes will have to come naturally and you will need space uh, to be able to do that. So it's important. This one's really simple, but think slow, act fast. I really like that. That's a really good way to go about creating a product. Uh, If you're a mechanical engineer, learn MATLAB or Python and use it to speed up and perfect your first pass at design. So starting from first principles, such as free body diagrams, a simple structural uh, fat finger calculation, etc. These could be made much um, faster and better using code. I just really like this quote from the episode that I'll just uh, requote here. The value of discovery in hardware is not the same as it is in software. I'll just leave you with that to ponder. And then last two pieces are AI could slot itself into design review cycles to help judge the design from different angles and parameters set by the team. That was an interesting insight into when we were talking about how uh, the future of modern hardware development will look like. And then as an engineer, scout out opportunities to set yourself up for learning. Will gives this example of uh, solving a problem using Python instead of a spreadsheet, even though he knew that a spreadsheet would have taken him uh, a day where Python took him a few weeks. And this is something that he recommended that most engineers do so that they always have continuous improvement. Well, with that, I will wrap up the Too Long Didn't Listen. I hope those key takeaways will help you when when you're attacking your product design. The opinions and information shared on this podcast are for informational purposes only. We always recommend that you seek professional advice before taking any action related to your business or personal ventures. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed the episode.